Well, welcome to the Get Fit with Jodell podcast. I am Jodell as usual, and I am happy once again to have Dr. Ray Pete with me here today. Uh, Dr. Ray Pete is officially my forever go-to source for all things nutrition and health, and he has a PhD in biology. He has taught at many renowned schools and universities regarding all things nutrition and women's health specifically. You can learn more about him by visiting raypete.com. That's R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. And you will be as inspired as I am today as we are talking about digestion. So, Dr. Pete, I'm so very honored to have you back on the podcast again. You are always so generous with your knowledge. And I wanted to pick your brain about digestion today and all the digestive distress that at least I have seen in my practice. And, you know, um, from what I understand, digestion is one of the top five reasons people come to see their doctor. And also, at, and in my practice, it's one of the top five reasons people give me a call, too. So I wanted to pick your brain. What what do you think uh, or why do you think there's so much digestive distress in our modern society? And was it this bad 40 or 50 years ago? Uh, one of the things that has been a general uh, problem is the physical inactivity. Uh, uh, like uh, people who live in apartments have to take their dogs out for a walk every day because the digestive system tends to slow down uh, when you aren't walking. right at the first about um, people going for walks a lot more or they used to walk 
a lot more. And now, do you think that a lot of our digestive distress is from a kind of a society of sitting? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, everyone who uh, takes up the habit of walking uh, for an hour or so a day uh, notices improved digestion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the general sense of well-being is is largely because of the uh, improved movement of, of the intestinal muscles, mm-hmm. but also improved uh, uh, secretions, uh, the, the uh, uh, feeling good and relaxing and moving around uh, reduces the nervous tension and that increases the secretions. Uh, you can see it even in saliva. Uh, when, when you're very anxious, your mouth tends to go dry uh, mm. because of the shift uh, toward, from uh, one part of the nervous system to the other shuts off secretions, starting in the mouth but uh, affecting all the way down. Yeah, so there is kind of a north-to-south process, right? So would you say that the saliva is just as important as the stomach acid? I mean, as it starts there and it works down to the stomach acid and then the CCK and um, all the different secretions that happen from the pancreas and the liver, like, is there is it pretty important to start with the fundamentals, like keeping um, a good cephalic head phase of digestion going as well as good adequate stomach acid? Uh, oh, yeah, um Anyone who has taken a drug uh, that shuts down uh, saliva production uh, has uh, generally had an outbreak of of cavities. Mm. Uh, the the anticholinergic drugs and some of the antihistamines uh, reduce the production of saliva so much uh, that the uh, it's not just the drying of the lower quantity of saliva, but the composition changes chemically. Uh, And uh, instead of washing away and uh, inactivating bacteria and their products, it tends to favor their growth. Uh, So you can see it as uh, increased deposits on the teeth, but especially in the uh, extremely fast uh, development of cavities when the mouth is dry. Isn't that fascinating that digestion even translates to teeth health? So I, I really, I didn't even have any idea about that. I just assumed you were going to say something like uh, the not having the adequate saliva would lead to poor digestion too because they need that enzymatic breakdown in the mouth. So is that also the case? Um, there is a little that begins in the mouth uh, and uh, 50 to 70 years ago, uh, some people were uh, getting sort of fanatical about having to chew your food mm-hmm. so many times to make sure you liquefied it. But uh, the quantity of enzymes in the saliva uh, is uh, not very great compared to some animals. Uh, and those same enzymes are secreted later in the stomach uh, and intestines. So if you miss uh, getting some of the digestion started in your mouth, your stomach can make up for it by by secreting a, a lot of the starch breakdown enzymes too. 
Okay, well, let's talk about that, that north to south process. So I've always been an advocate for adequate stomach acid for proper digestion. So what are your thoughts on the stomach acid itself and how we can keep it adequate? Uh, That's another thing that's regulated strongly by the nerves and hormones. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, uh, uh, the ultimate source of the acidity is in oxidation and production of carbon dioxide, Mm. uh, which then uh, is uh, involved in the secretion of hydrochloric acid. Uh, But it's a respiratory process, essentially, and so uh, if your thyroid is very low, your stomach acid is going to be low, Uh, and uh, uh, the, the muscles become weaker at the same time that the secretions are weaker. Uh, and and so uh, slowing down the transit time uh, for various reasons, including inactivity, uh, the slower transit uh, uh, gives time for abnormal, uh, even uh, yeast can develop at an extreme uh, in, in the stomach uh, when the acid is very low and the muscle contraction is very slow, food can stay in the stomach so long that uh, around 1955 or 60, there were some cases in the news of people who were thought to be drunkards because they always reeked of alcohol and were half drunk all the time. It turned out that they uh, had a little brewery always going in their stomach and intestine. Uh, if they would uh, eat carbohydrate, uh, starch, for example, the uh, enzymes, uh, their own enzymes, could produce enough sugar that uh, yeast could grow on it, uh, producing alcohol and carbon dioxide. Uh, and uh, they can produce enough to, to make a person chronically a little drunk. Uh, but at the same time, the yeast is poisoning them. Uh, but uh, there, are, there are different degrees short of that. Uh, when you look at the uh, health, look at a, a big population like the U.S. where uh, a high proportion uh, aren't very healthy, uh, and look at microorganisms at different points uh, of the small intestine and stomach, uh, a small percentage, maybe 10%, have a completely germ-free stomach and small intestine, uh, sterile all the way down until it gets to the colon. Mm. Uh, And then uh, a larger proportion, 30 or 40 percent, the lower half uh, of the small intestine is uh, fairly well infected. Uh, And then I think it's about another uh, third of the population has detectable germs all the way up to uh, around where the the pancreatic enzymes get in. Uh, The enzymes have weakened to the extent that germs can survive right up to the area where where the uh, proteolytic and lipolytic enzymes are being secreted. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the, the slow transit and weak secretions uh, allow uh, or, organisms that sometimes can be pathogenic, uh, and um, in general, uh, they go with a, a reduced state of health. A very high proportion of the population 
suffers from having uh, some degree uh, of microorganism overgrowth uh, between the stomach uh, and the uh, beginning of the colon. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they grow only in the colon, uh, they're pretty harmless. Yeah, I want to come back to those microorganisms because, as you know, there's a big movement of people advocating for all of these gut healing protocols with probiotics and prebiotics and stuff like that. So I want to come back to that. But as far as like um, th- like going down the north to south process, so going through the stomach acid, now we come to like the liver and the gallbladder. I'm assuming the g- liver and gallbladder are pretty important to digestion too, but as I'm seeing, a lot of people have liver stagnation, and then a lot of people don't even have a gallbladder anymore. So can you talk about the importance of making sure that even if you don't have a gallbladder, how important it is to keep your liver functioning well? Um, uh, yeah, the, the liver uh, absorbs nutrients, and along with the nutrients uh, uh, will, will come uh, the toxins, especially if you have bacteria growing with, with the digesting food where they, they shouldn't be, mm-hmm. uh, they're necessarily going to produce toxins that will burden your liver. Uh, and uh, uh, so one of the first things that, that goes wrong when your uh, digestion slows and the bacteria uh, and yeast uh, start growing where they shouldn't is that the high endotoxin will start slowing down your liver function and swamping the ability of the liver to detoxify uh, and excrete uh, uh, these toxins. Uh, That's where, uh, uh, even if a person is sedentary, uh, if they uh, eat enough fiber, uh, the fiber is going to uh, bind and move along some of the bacteria and uh, in the process of, of a bulk of, of fiber moving through you, uh, the fiber reduces the uh, absorption of endotoxin mm-hmm. and uh, the one of the functions of the liver besides detoxifying endotoxin is to uh, keep the level of hormones under control. Your glands increase the amount of hormone in your blood, the liver decreases it by attaching sulfuric acid or glucuronic acid to the molecule, making it water-soluble so that it can leave in your kidneys, Uh, but some of it is excreted uh, into the bile, especially if if you're overloading the excretion uh, glucuronidation process. Mm -hmm. Then these hormones like estrogen are coming out in the bile, and they will be reabsorbed and uh, give you a chronic excess of circulating estrogen mm-hmm. uh, if your liver slows down, and that can be, uh, to some extent, overcome by making sure that you're taking in fiber all the time to, to bind and move along uh, both the endotoxin, the bacteria, and the excreted hormones, such as estrogen and cortisol. Yeah, and in a little bit, I want to touch on exactly what some fiber foods are that you would recommend for healthy digestion. Um, but also, can you explain, like, in really layman's terms for people to understand endotoxin? Um, how would you explain that? Uh, its chemical name is 
saccharide. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a, a group of fatty acids attached to a carbohydrate that has uh, something uh, analogous to a, a soaping action physically that mm -hmm. uh, it is the fat is absorbed into cells and it drags in uh, this carbohydrate that acts as an irritant mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, cells are, are basically irritated and inflamed when they absorb it uh, and uh, the, uh, the the gallbladder every tissue is is damaged by endotoxin but uh, the, the gallbladder receiving the chemicals estrogen and endotoxin for example that haven't been completely detoxified mm -hmm. uh, the the system leading up to the gallbladder and the muscle and duct leading out of the gallbladder uh, became becoming inflamed uh, and this will show up uh, for example in pregnancy if estrogen extre is extremely high uh, the, the uh, cholesterol will tend to accumulate there uh, and uh, the, the bile uh, becomes uh, abnormal, tends to uh, precipitate uh, cholesterol and uh, a variety of chemicals that form sludge or, or stones in the gallbladder at the same time that the, the endotoxin is weakening the contractile function of the gallbladder, but the estrogen, uh, besides uh, creating that tendency to uh, be unable to excrete, act, it can cause a, a spasm of the duct uh, leading out of the gallbladder, mm. uh, and uh, uh, that can uh, bring on a crisis uh, in, in which uh, a, a stone uh, might not be able to be expelled or, or um, uh, the, the bile can accumulate and uh, uh, just build up pressure. Uh, thyroid deficiency is extremely closely associated uh, to gallbladder problems mm. because of the, the lowered uh, uh, detoxifying function of the liver when the thyroid is low. Uh, and so uh, I, I think without exception, the people that I've known who've had uh, gallbladder uh, disease, especially surgery, were extremely uh, hypothyroid chronically. Mm -hmm. uh, and that usually goes uh, with too much estrogen that uh, can cause spasms anywhere in the in the smooth muscles, starting uh, with the the gallbladder and the duct, uh, but uh, even the, the small intestine. In uh, uh, X-ray studies, they've uh, given a big dose of estrogen, mm -hmm. and they can see the small intestine going into a cramp, uh, so it blocks the the duct out of the gallbladder, uh, or it can cause spasms anywhere along the line. And when you get into that overexcited, under-energized state of the uh, smooth muscle of the intestine, a local irritation can send out 
waves of contraction, and it can go backwards, uh, especially uh, during sleep uh, when the nervous system is relaxing. Uh, irritation way down the uh, small intestine. Uh, there, it can go into spasm, not allow passage, and instead a wave will head north from the uh, spastic block in the intestine, uh, and it can talking about um, how the gut can go spastic as well as the, um, I think you mentioned something else about endotoxins. There was another symptom you had mentioned, but what are some of the digestive symptoms someone might experience if they have a high level of endotoxins? Um, when, when the intestine gets in trouble, the symptoms can be uh, throughout the whole body because uh, the uh, when the, the um, energy is low, permeability is high. Mm-hmm. In other words, the blood vessels leak uh, in the wall of the intestine, and what should be absorbed as digested food going into the lymphatic system uh, to uh, to be processed by the liver as nutrients. Uh, uh, Instead of going the proper route, uh, all of the blood vessels in the intestine uh, become over-permeable and uh, the toxins then get into your general circulation. Uh, So when the intestine is in bad shape, the so-called leaky intestine uh, is letting the toxin go straight to your brain and, and heart and lungs. Uh, so it can contribute to symptoms like uh, obstructive pulmonary disease, mm-hmm. emphysema, uh, uh, shock-like symptoms, uh, just poor lung function in general, r- reduced heart function, heart failure, uh, 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 various uh, insomnia, uh, uh, the uh, sleep apnea, all of these things involve endotoxin poisoning uh, as a rule. 
Those are some huge, I mean, that really tells us that there's so much correlated with endotoxin when you lay out that list. What about some lesser known symptoms, you know, like would gas and bloating for someone be, and that's a clear cut issue that they've got some endotoxins going on or things? The, uh, the gas and bloating, uh, if you tap on your belly and it sounds like a drum, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's the accumulation of gas. And if the muscle tone is proper uh, as gas forms, it it should uh, be constantly uh, released a little bit at a time. But when when you're in that spastic state, uh, the sphincters don't let it out. The peristalsis doesn't move it along. Uh, And so it uh, forms uh, great balloons of gas that that, uh, can cause pain uh, and... uh, uh, the, the, uh, that that pressure in itself uh, can, for example, cause migraine. Uh, the, the same enterologist that I mentioned before, experimenting on his medical students, uh, at the time uh, they were shifting the paradigm at 19th century. Uh, everyone uh, believed that the intestine was a source of Toxins, uh, very well based scientifically, but around 1910 to 1920, uh, the medical industry was being modernized and they wanted to get away from all of the traditional uh, food can be your medicine. They wanted to throw away that concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they, they suppressed the idea uh, of self-intoxication from the intestine and uh, did various things to argue that it's uh, nothing but pressure, not toxicity. And and so uh, what Walter Alvarez, the professor, did uh, was to uh, insert uh, big wads of cotton in the rectums of his medical students uh, in the afternoon mm-hmm. and uh, when when they came back, uh, those of them who had a susceptibility to uh, headaches and, and migraines, uh, they all uh, had a headache brought on just by the pressure of cotton in their rectum. <laughs> he, he said, see, uh, it isn't autotoxicity, it's just pressure from not not uh, moving the bowels often enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so he, in a way, was blaming it uh, on on behavior rather than uh, on the nature of the food and digestive process. Do you think that anxiety has anything to do with uh, endotoxin or gut distress? I mean, you hear the whole gut-brain connection. So what do you feel about that anxiety? Uh, you know, it goes both ways. Uh, the absorption of toxins, uh, they have uh, fed different kinds of fiber to uh, uh, experimental animals, uh, rats in particular, uh, and found that uh, a, a type of fiber, soluble fiber, uh, that feeds bacteria, uh, that's the kind that's being recommended by a lot of companies as a prebiotic mm-hmm. feeding bacteria. But in, in the rats, they found that soluble fiber increased their fearfulness and their aggression. 
Mm. Definite brain changes just from adding this one type of fiber-feeding bacteria. But it can go the other way. If you have uh, some kind of an emotional experience, the shift uh, towards high sympathetic adrenaline activity uh, takes the blood away from your digestive system, makes it available to your muscle system for the fight-or-flight reaction, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, the intestines uh, suffers oxygen and sugar deprivation meanwhile. Uh, and uh, if that's continued, that energy deprivation leads to the increased permeability and absorption of toxins. Uh, so it can uh, cause a, a chronic uh, brain syndrome uh, uh, all the way to epilepsy. Uh, animal experiments have, have shown that uh, the combination of pressure and uh, irritation and hypoglycemia is enough to bring on epileptic seizures in animals. Mm. Uh, but short of that, you will experience mood changes, aggression, fearfulness, anxiety, and, and so on from different lower degrees of, of bloating you mentioned with the cotton how it was kind of a the, what that they were calling the prebiotic fiber, but and let's talk about that. What about probiotics? What about this trend where everybody's taking these megaspores and probiotics as well as eating prebiotic fiber? What do you think about that? Um, I, animal experiments uh, uh, when uh, the um, uh, a, a doctor. Uh, uh, Dennis Burkett uh, showed that uh, uh, Africans were pretty free of bowel cancer because mm-hmm. of eating fiber. Uh, that started a fiber craze. But instead of saying people should eat potatoes, which he was saying in Africa, uh, Americans had uh, waste cereal fiber to sell, bran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that started the, uh, the craze of using oat bran as the fiber. Mm-hmm. And so uh, people started doing research on oat bran happens to break down into uh, bowel carcinogens, mm-hmm. uh, estrogenic uh, 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 fiber breakdown products. Uh, and so they compared uh, a clean cellulose fiber relatively. Uh, wheat bran uh, didn't break down to the carcinogens uh, the way the the oat bran did. Uh, But the the good thing about cellulose is that uh, it's practically uh, resistant to bacterial breakdown. So it functions only as fiber, uh, stimulates peristalsis, cleans out, uh, binds uh, a lot of the estrogen and endotoxin. Uh, So it's, it's very safe and usually effective. Uh, but what they're selling now, it's uh, a very ornate bunch of assumptions uh, building on, on the function of how it breaks down. Uh, they like to see the, the short chain fatty acids, uh, which uh, they concentrate on, on some local effects uh, that uh, seem to be protective to the intestine. But when you look at the systemic effects of these uh, 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 lactic acid tends to go with uh, butyric acid and propionic 
acid as products of the breakdown of these soluble fibers. Uh, and uh, uh, these uh, contribute to uh, systemic problems as well as local uh, uh, damage to the intestine. Uh, so the, the, there's a huge amount of research, but it's very selective and in a limited context. I, I see it as, as a giant advertising industry uh, supported by, by the food uh, food products manufacturers. Yeah, and as far as like the the probiotics that they're selling, do they have any benefit? Like, you know, you'll hear bifidus bacteria is a big one, and even in my early career, like I would, I always thought that that was the one that I wanted to help people with their digestion with because seventy percent of our bacteria is made up of that, and it seemed like a lot of people were lacking it. Um, so, is there any benefit? Or now I don't advocate for probiotics anymore because I'm, I don't understand the mechanism of adding bacteria in when we're in a world of bacteria. If we could just eat the proper foods like what you're saying, we can remedy some of this. So what are your thoughts? I, I, yeah, the, the people who lose the safe type bacteria, well, first of all, the, the small intestine shouldn't be having any bacteria. Right. Uh, but uh, the, the uh, the safer bacteria in the colon uh, are uh, competed against by the more irritating bacteria. Uh, and it's the bacteria which are present that establish a whole ecosystem. And even if, if you eat a, a, a yogurt-type uh, bacteria, uh, a lot of them will not survive a healthy digestive system. Uh, the the stomach and, and pancreas secretions uh, will uh, simply uh, keep them from growing. But when they do get through mm-hmm. uh, and reach the colon, uh, the existing bacteria will usually just uh, suppress their growth. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you need something which, uh, along with uh, the, the um, harmless bacteria like the lactobacillus, you, you need something that produces basically an, a competitive antibiotic that will uh, give themselves the chance to uh, compete against the more irritating bacteria. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, years ago they were selling uh, a product called uh, Earth-based bacteria, I think, mm-hmm. or Earth-derived bacteria, and that started in the Second World War. Uh, the Germans in North Africa noticed that the indigenous people uh, didn't suffer from dysentery, where the, their soldiers uh, were all having terrible diarrhea, uh, and they found that uh, the remedy locally uh, was to eat a little bit of camel, camel dung, Mm. And uh, so they uh, looked at what was in the camel dung, and uh, I think it was three main bacteria, uh, and uh, uh, those were sold in American health food stores as these earth-based bacteria. Uh, And uh, in the Ukraine and some Eastern European countries, uh, that has continued. Uh, I tried one product called Biosporin, which was 
I think Bacillus subtilis mm-hmm. and uh, Lycaniformis, I think, was the other one. And they produce a, a very strong uh, antibiotic. And at certain times of the year, uh, unpasteurized cow's milk uh, has a lot of these, which make the milk uh, uh, very extremely resistant to bacterial growth, mm-hmm. which would be a good condition to have in your colon. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in uh, Grants Pass, when I was in, in school there, uh, one of the dairies was proud of its uh, uh, raw milk, and uh, there was no re- air conditioning in the county fair building during the summer, mm-hmm. and so it was always hot where, where they displayed milk. His competitors' uh, milk would go sour by the first afternoon, so they had to change their display mm-hmm. because the, it would separate into a curd and a green or yellow whey, and he kept his raw milk on display all the whole week of the uh, fair. Uh, and that, that can only be explained by the presence of antibiotic bacteria such as subtilis, uh, which are, are natural when the cows are healthy and the milk isn't too pasteurized. Yeah, and that's not one you hear about normally in any of the supplements. But you mentioned, uh, since you mentioned camel dung, it got me thinking about what about our poo? Like, is our poo like a marker of how our digestion is doing? Would you say that you you can look at your poo and decide, do I have a lot of endotoxins? Am I doing okay? Like the the structure of the um, poo itself? I, I, yeah, it should be basically of the color and odor as a baby's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it starts smelling rotten, uh, usually you're feeling rotten. <laughs> and... and uh, uh, getting getting that through you quickly is one of the functions of a good inert uh, fiber, uh, and uh, uh, the right kind of bacteria uh, can survive your digestion uh, and uh, living in your colon. It can uh, uh, simply act as an antibiotic to kill off those uh, uh, horrible rot-producing bacteria. Mm. So let's talk about some of those fiber foods and maybe a food like that's an antibiotic type food that you recommend for someone to improve their digestion. Uh, um, if you look at foods at, at plants that uh, grow in a, a warm, moist, dark environment, which is like our intestine, mm-hmm. to, to survive in that kind of a, a bacteria and fungus rich and supportive environment, they have to contain their intrinsic antibiotics. Uh, and uh, root vegetables typically are uh, uh, contain that sort of antibiotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if you, uh, the, the difference between uh, uh, a moist above ground uh, vegetable like lettuce. I've experimented uh, putting it in a a room temperature or warmer place in a low oxygen environment like a a bag uh, and and, uh, then put a carrot in the same situation Uh, after uh, three days or the usual transit time uh, the the lettuce will be a rotten mess uh, and uh, the 
keep showing that the, the carrot has a very powerful antibiotic system. So that got me started uh, on the carrot salad idea. If you shred the carrot finely mm-hmm. and lengthwise uh, so that you maximize the fibrous property of it, uh, that's a physical uh, binding agent that releases as it travels along, slowly releases some of its antibiotic uh, substances. But if you eat it with a little olive or coconut oil uh, and uh, a little vinegar, both of these saturated fats are uh, bactericides or bacteriostats and fungicides. Uh, And uh, so you have three types of antibiotic substances in a pleasant tasting salad Mm -hmm. Uh, and doing that every day uh, kept my intestine healthy for about 20 years Mm -hmm. and and, uh, I I, uh, eventually wanted to branch out for something less boring uh, and I found that bamboo shoots if they're uh, well boiled are don't don't have any intrinsically uh, harmful properties. Uh, a little bit of cyanide, but uh, uh, that that's harmless in, in uh, the slow absorption. Uh, uh, but um, uh, they uh, contain uh, quite a bit of antibiotic and anti-inflammatory effect, uh, as well as lots of cellulose and uh, very little uh, of the type of uh, material that could support bacterial growth. Uh, and uh, well-cooked mushrooms are a very different kind of fiber uh, that carries with it uh, antibiotics and anti-inflammatory uh, chemicals. Uh, and then for, for, for a short-use, uh, well-cooked oat bran or wheat bran mm-hmm. uh, is fine for, for uh, getting a temporary cleaning out. You just don't want to uh, eat a lot of oat bran every day for 30 years because it does release that mild carcinogen. Mm-hmm. What foods would they want to eliminate? Obviously, there's a lot that they could choose from, but um, what are some of the key foods someone would want to eliminate with digestive issues? Um, the things that are hard to digest, uh, so all raw vegetables except for carrots, mm-hmm. as far as I know. Uh, uh, there were experiments uh, early in the food industry uh, in which uh, they would make a selection of uh, raw vegetables that were popular canned items in grocery stores. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And uh, then uh, they would feed one group of rats nothing but those vegetables. And then another group of rats, they would uh, feed the exact choice of vegetables, but from cans, uh, cooked to, at a high uh, pressure and, and quick cooking uh, to make them uh, soft and, and tasty. And the rats that ate the canned vegetables thrived as long as the experiment went on. Uh, the ones on the raw vegetables couldn't digest them, got diarrhea, <laughs> and wasted away wow. uh, with digestive problems. Uh, so uh, raw vegetables... Are, are uh, people people often tolerate them, uh, but they aren't really good for anyone. 
Would you say like eliminating gluten would be another one people would want to do, like uh, gluten-containing foods? Oh, 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 yeah. All of the seed uh, substances mm -hmm. combine uh, either protein and oil or protein uh, and starch, mm -hmm. uh, and that combination is always hard on the digestion. Uh, when the protein is uh, in the – if you just grind the seed in its – natural form, the protein is in a storage form in, in which uh, the number of molecules is much smaller than uh, the, the sprout will contain. Uh, the, the sprout uses those uh, as growth substance uh, before the plant develops the ability to make its own food. So it needs some way of concentrating the essential amino acid equivalents, uh, they are not in the seed, but the um, atoms needed to make the essential amino acids are there. So if, if you eat the seed, uh, a bean, for example, uh, has supposedly a high percentage of protein, but it, it's the atoms that are needed to make a high-quality protein that you find in the bean or the cereal, uh, rather than the protein itself. Uh, if you soak the seed to the point of sprouting, uh, one experiment found that there was as much as two and a half times more protein value uh, for soaking a seed to the point of sprouting. Mm -hmm. And in the process of making those functional proteins, those resemble uh, animal proteins to a great extent, but in the storage form, gluten is just one storage protein that uh, has been famous for its uh, irritating properties. Uh, these uh, proteins that are designed for storage have to uh, have a lot of uh, ammonia stored in a bound form. Mm -hmm. uh, so the uh, lysine, for example, uh, all of the uh, uh, pro uh, amino acids with a uh, amino side group, uh, these are concentrated in the storage proteins, and then they're broken down, and the amine, uh, the nitrogen is released and resynthesized into different amino acids. Uh, arginine, uh, for example, is one of the... Uh, uh, potential irritants, uh, and uh, uh, when when we digest it, it can uh, feed the increase of nitric oxide mm -hmm. that goes w with irritated intestine uh, from endotoxin. Uh, so a combination of of uh, bacteria and arginine from a, a grain or bean uh, becomes multiply toxic and irritating. And the, the quality of protein is, is simply uh, so low that uh, some specialists have said uh, uh, you can't consider uh, legumes and, and uh, cereals as uh, food proteins at all. Uh, they, they rank at 6% or so, uh, or milk ranks at 70%, at, uh, egg yolk at uh, 100%. Mm. And on that scale... Uh, potatoes, uh, uh, at least of some varieties, uh, uh, rank at higher than 100% because they contain uh, 
materials that can use the uh, ammonia or nitrogen-containing groups uh, that are waste in our bodies, recycle them and make make them into essential amino acids. So the protein and potato equivalent is is basically more than perfect. That is so fascinating. I've heard you say that before, and I just think that that's such an interesting thing you don't hear. As far as like advice you would give someone and supplements or lifestyle habits, what other advice would you give um, for someone who's looking to improve their digestion? Um, the, the, um, the, the setting, um, living, living in an interesting way, uh, avoiding anxiety is... Uh, uh, an essential thing. Uh, you don't want to eat uh, while working on something anxiety provoking. You want to digest it uh, properly mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, avoid the indigestible uh, raw proteins and undercooked uh, cereals mm-hmm. uh, and uh, keep keep the nutrients in balance. The uh, uh, milk protein uh, and other things in milk uh, have uh, non-food value. They have, they, milk is designed biologically to facilitate uh, digestion and assimilation, both of the nutrients. Uh, so it, it's a very complex system of uh, favoring uh, the working of the intestine. Uh, For for a long time, uh, people investigating digestion have found different ways to study it. For example, uh, uh, Pavlov uh, used a pouch into the stomach to to watch what happens. Uh, The conditional reflex psychology uh, grew out of his discovery uh, of... uh, what happens in the stomach? Uh, he found that uh, if, if the uh, uh, lab workers uh, dressed in a certain way, it could disturb the dog's digestion. Uh, unexpected things uh, could uh, delay their their digestion by a long time. Uh, so he, he made it very clear that uh, the setting in which you eat is. I think I could do a whole other part two with you on this. I mean, digestion is just unbelievably related to good health. So I appreciate your time today. This has been wonderful as usual. And um, could you just tell the listeners briefly about how they can get your newsletter? Because I think it's really important that people keep up with what you're putting out. Um, can you let them know how they can do that? Um, yeah. If you email repeats newsletter at gmail.com. Uh, you can get information on how to subscribe. It's by email. It's twenty-eight dollars for twelve bi-monthly issues. That's two years, twelve issues. 
Yeah, and it's the least we can do for all of the wealth of knowledge you give to us so so generously in these podcasts. So we really appreciate your time and thank you. I hope that this gives people some insight on how to improve their digestion because it seems to be very important. So thank you, Dr. Pete, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again. Okay, thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.